Welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. And here in the studio, I've got Ashley Wakefield back again. Hey, everybody. Hey. Uh, We've been working through chapter by chapter the book of Isaiah. And we are in a really, uh, for some people, might be a boring section of Isaiah where we've been walking through uh, different regions that Isaiah is um, specifically naming and calling out. And I don't know if I've explained this as well as I probably should have in a couple of episodes before, but a big reason that he's doing this, why Isaiah is writing all of these different passages to different um, nations, is really to show that a lot of what God is about to do in the world is going to upend a lot of how they're used to things being done. And it's going to climax in a huge way in chapters 24 and 25 of Isaiah, where he takes a way broader approach to how the world is going to be treated by God. And we see these uh, judgments that happen um, as a result of not just Israel and Judah failing, but also all of the other nations failing. So basically now uh, we're in this section where we're focusing on specific countries and uh, regions that were uh, that are going to get shifted and changed. And this is one of the few times as we've been going through this where this is less of a judgment against this nation and more of just how things are going to shift and change in their society and in their culture as a result of what God's going to do on a massive and grand uh, grand level. So um, the region we're talking about today is Cush, um, which... Uh, Cush is actually first mentioned in Genesis 2 um, and has a lot of tie-ins, interestingly, with the Garden of Eden, which I won't get into here, but it is fun to go and uh, read in uh, Genesis 2 how the Garden of Eden appears to be pretty close to Cush. But um, there is... uh, really a lot that we don't know about this culture and in this society. They were in the southern areas, um, close to the uh, Arabian Desert, um, and really in the uh, regions close to Ethiopia and Egypt. And a lot of what you'll see in this passage is really directing a lot of um, the themes that have been talked about in Deuteronomy when um, it talks about how the Jews um, are not supposed to go down south and engage with the people of Egypt and specifically these kind of Cush area. Um, to go back to that area is to kind of go back to um, the time where they were enslaved in Egypt and it's to bring back a lot of that um living in sin even in their life. Um, There are specific instructions in Deuteronomy for the king not to like uh, grab uh, 
any horses from the land of Ethiopia and Egypt, not to grab gold and amass huge amounts of wealth through trading with these southern nations. And so a lot of that is stuff that you probably don't know about because it's really only in Deuteronomy that a lot of those laws are presented as uh, things that Judah is not supposed to involve themselves with. And uh, now what we have in this passage is really a passage that's focusing on Judah being involved with this group of people um, called the Cushites and how they are tempted in some way to engage in some type of uh, uh, relationship and how that goes against sort of the Deuteronomy code. And so we see the results of what's going to happen in this passage. So that's kind of kind of the background of how Cush plays a part in what's to come. And uh, no surprise, the next uh, chapter will focus on Egypt specifically. So it kind of takes a broader view of Cush as a whole, which is kind of the land that's around Egypt, but not Egypt specifically, and then moves directly to Cush. So yeah, so my question um, about Cush was I wanted to make sure that this was correct, you know, not just for me, but also for people listening. Yeah. That, um, when I looked the Strong's Dictionary of, you know, the Hebrew um, translations of Cush and even, even other versions, maybe um, Cush and Ethiopia are basically interchangeable. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting is the Hebrew word uh, for Cush um, is uh, not related to Ethiopia at that particular moment in time because Ethiopia wasn't like a considered a nation at that point you know mm-hmm. um but that land is definitely part of ethiopia and that area what would later become ethiopia so yes uh, that that is correct okay. uh, it would later become ethiopia it's just not at that point in time so my other question which was related to things being interchangeable and this was something that i saw in commentaries and i just wanted to check to see if you um, thought the same thing or found out the same thing but mm-hmm. i know that they said that Cush was also ruling over Egypt at this time. So sometimes maybe in the book of Isaiah or some other books, possibly that Ethiopia or Cush in Egypt were basically referring to the same thing because Egypt was under Cush. And so if they were referring to Egypt, sometimes they were referring to Cush or Ethiopia as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of debate. Uh, among commentaries on that point. Um, some commentaries uh, try and place this passage in particular in a period where Cush was over Ethiopia. Um, some commentaries think that this passage was written later than that time and Ethiopia and Cush were separate. The one thing we do know is that Egypt was the main powerhouse of the south that terrified the Assyrians the most. And the Assyrians and uh, the Egyptians had a really... Uh, negative opinion of one another and it appears in this passage as if Cush uh, in particular is also trying to join with Egypt in that front against the Assyrians um, so we do know that but again that is something that's hotly contested um, I actually read a lot of commentaries on this and they said of all the passages in Isaiah this chapter is the most vague oracle yeah. of any of the chapters in Isaiah so this is the hardest as it gets um, but yeah so some some people say yes on that and then other people say no on that yeah I actually read the same thing saying it was pretty obscure yeah um, All right. Well, uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the chapter. Woe to the land of warring wings along the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by sea and papyrus boats over the water. Go swift messengers to a people tall and smooth skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers. All you people of the world, 
You who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you will see it, and when a trumpet sounds, you will hear it. This is what the Lord says to me. I will remain quiet and will look on from my dwelling place, like shimmering heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is gone and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he will cut off the shoots with pruning knives and cut down and take away the spreading branches. They will all be left to the mountain birds of prey and to the wild animals. The birds will feed on them all summer, the wild animals all winter. And the time gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty from a people tall and smooth skin, from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by rivers. The gifts will be brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. All right, so now that you've had this dive into this really obscure chapter as we're going through it, uh, one of the first things that I was just really uh, moved by was um, the first uh, uh, verse of this, which is, Woe to the land of whirling wings. And Ashley, you uh, had some thoughts on that just related to like locusts and things. So I'm curious, what, what were some of the thoughts you had? Um, yeah, so when I looked up, um, first of all, the word woe and then whirring wings, um, mm-hmm. I know whirring wings, they said, was related to um, either flies or the locusts that was located in the area. And I know that they said they used to hover um, over the waters, which is water is mentioned later on um, in that um, first section in verse two. Yeah. And um, the word woe, and I think you may have mentioned this already, but I guess I'll just emphasize it again yeah. if you did. But like the idea that, you know, woe. Uh, when people see that at the beginning, they normally think of it as a warning or declaring something bad. But, you know, in this case, God is basically not declaring judgment against them, but wanting them to listen to what he's about to say. And that was one of my favorite things about um, this prophecy, actually, is God kind of having the attitude and I guess to put it in 21st. 21st um, century turns it's like yeah i really don't need help with this let me tell you what i'm gonna do (laughs) right right and i did read a commentary that was talking about how um whirling wings uh the land of that kind of ethiopia kush area uh tended to have these like uh um locusts and different types of uh flying buzzing insects um that created this kind of uh, term that we think of when we think of Cush. I also think it's interesting that it talks about the rivers of Cush because mm-hmm. um, in Genesis 2, it also mentions a river running through Cush. So it's just mm-hmm. interesting that, that it is kind of hearkening uh, back to Genesis 2 a little bit. Um, there's also what's interesting about um, this time period, and there's a lot of history that's been done about this, um, with uh, seafaring uh, mm-hmm. nations. Um, the Israelites in particular... We're not a seafaring nation. And uh, for most of our assumptions is that the Philistines that the Israelites fight with the most um, were a seafaring nation, and they were almost like pirates. Mm. And there is some evidence of these um, uh, pirates invading Egypt at one point in time and actually conquering a pharaoh um, during during that time. And there being this sort of like strife and war between um, the seafaring pirate nations, maybe the Philistines or whatever. So it's interesting that we have this kind of Cushite envoys that are sent by sea. Mm-hmm. Um, probably in maybe even um, we know that Egypt uh, did develop um, a seafaring uh, boats and things like that. Um, and so probably using Egypt as a, as a port to get out into the sea to then journey to Jerusalem, which I just think mm-hmm. is a really beautiful image of um, from the, from the 
uh, perspective of Jerusalem, they're used to these Philistines sailing in boats towards their land, you know, and it being like really uh, scary. And so with this new uh, group of people from Cush sailing in boats towards Jerusalem, there is this kind of fear of, is this going to be the same thing as what the Philistines are doing? Um, and so I do think that there's a little bit of implied fear from the side of Judah um, when this verse kind of uh, begins basically. Um, we then get into uh, what I think is probably the hardest section of the whole passage, which mm-hmm. is the go swift messengers to a people of tall and smooth skin. I think here you can see there's a break in the segment between verses one and two, and then the second part of verse two. I think here that break is telling you that we're switching perspectives again. So I think the go swift messengers to a people tall and smooth of skin is actually Judah and Judah's response to the envoys, which are sent over the water. And so um, they are going to go to a people tall and smooth skinned, which I think are um, the nation of Cush. And these people are, it's interesting. The two words for tall and smooth skin are very weird words in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Smooth skin literally is translated in its most real form as polished. And tall is really more better translated as stretched or like taffy stretched. It's really weird. It's like elongated. Taffy stretched. Yeah. Never... <laughs> yeah. But see, I thought it was the opposite. I thought it was um, the Kushites who were actually traveling to Judah to form an alliance. Oh, yeah, yeah, them. yeah. And that's true. The, the, oh, the, okay. the, the first part of verse 1 and 2, that's what's happening. Oh, but the, okay. the point when it says, go swift messengers oh. to a people tall and smooth skin, that point we switch perspectives. Oh, I see. And I so uh, the first part, you're right. And then the second part, the go swift messengers to a people, um, that people has to be Kush because that's not Assyria and that's not yeah. um, Judah. So that people has to be uh, Kush. And since that people has to be Kush, you have to kind of infer that there's a switch of perspectives in which, okay, the envoys have arrived at Judah. Now Judah is sending a response back to the people tall and smooth the skin, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I guess when I saw smooth skin, I guess I immediately thought of Egypt because I know that the Egyptians had a thing where they shaved off the hair. Mm -hmm, They Um, did, they did. And um, we'll get into that with the next couple (laughs) chapters too. It's going to be really amusing. Yeah. (laughs) And the... uh, Interesting thing is after those two verses where um, they go back to an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers, you have verse three, which I think is another shift in perspective again. So in verse three, you have all you people of the world, you who live on the earth. When a banner is raised on the mountains, you will see. And when a trumpet sounds, you will hear. I think that's pulling back from we're no longer talking from Judah's perspective and we're not talking from the writer's perspective. We're actually talking from God's perspective mm-hmm. and this is God now saying um, all you people of the uh, world and then you have in verse 4 kind of a clue to that when it says this is what the Lord says to me so that kind of lets you know hey this is from the perspective of God and then it says I will remain quiet and I will look on from my dwelling place place like shimmering heat in the sunshine so the setup then is that you have Cush sends envoys to Jerusalem. You should be thinking in the back of your mind, oh, no, this is bad because Deuteronomy tells them not to have relationships with people to the south. Then you see the next part of the verse says, go swift messengers. So it appears as if Jude is actually forming an alliance with them uh, in the second part. So then you have verse three that's from God's perspective saying, 
okay, I'm actually not going to do anything. I'm going to remain quiet and look on from my dwelling place, like shimmering heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Yeah, and that's actually one of my favorite parts of this prophecy, because you think about God being calm in the midst of the other nations sort of panicking, like, you know, this is about Assyria coming against, um, you know, Judah and Cush, and Assyria is, you know, on the mood in the process of conquering, and then you have Cush and Judah who are basically upset or panicking or have some level of fear of what's going to happen, and God is just sitting there like, I'm I'm fine, like, I'm not upset, so God being calm in the midst of everybody else panicking and moving back and forth and making plans and God's like I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to wait to the right time and then I'm going to strike <laughs> exactly exactly and that's exactly what we see here in this moment is that while they're trying to like buddy buddy and basically try and form these alliances so that they both can attack Assyria uh, God's like, y'all don't even know what I'm going to do with the world. And eventually I'm going to bring about destruction on uh, all the things that you hold dear. Right. And then uh, we have your uh, uh, passage section with returning to the theme of uh, God giving the land back to the animals again and mm-hmm. that uh, humans are bad and they've ruined the land. So we're going to remove humans and animals will get to enjoy the land again and all of that goes through uh, verse six and then we have a break again um, where um, uh, verse seven uh, is one line of prose when it says at that time gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty and I think this is just kind of a closer to the whole oracle as a whole basically saying that okay God knows that these people are planning out these different things he doesn't care because eventually he's going to do what he's going to do and that's going to bring about things regardless of people's plans Mm -hmm. and so what I love is the ending of this passage where um, the writer then kind of takes a step back from all of this and says as a result of God's plans what will happen is this people of tall smooth skin that were trying to form a relationship with Jerusalem will instead end up giving gifts to Jerusalem and they'll end up being this type of people that uh, basically is like trying to get in Judah's good graces Um, and a lot of people don't realize that gifts in this time period really were not the same as like a Christmas gift today where you just give a gift because you love someone Uh, gift giving in this time period was really related to uh, fealty and Mm -hmm. to service and so I would give a gift to a king if I wanted that king to favor me and to like me. Um, And that's really more of the uh, relationship dynamic of gift giving in this time. And so it's basically saying at the end that um, these people that are going here trying to form an alliance are eventually just going to be a people that are giving gifts because they're trying to get in Judah's good graces. And this is all happening because of God, not because of Judah forming an alliance with these people. So that's kind of the ending and close. Ashley, you got any final thoughts before we finish up um yeah i guess just going back to verse five i kind of like that part where it says for before the harvest when the blossom is gone and the flower becomes a ripening grape he will cut off the shoots with pruning knives and cut down and take away the spreading branches so it's like the time at which god is going to strike like he's not going to do it um right at the beginning right. he's going to wait right before everything comes to fruition right before they think everything is going to work out the way they want and that's when he's going to hit them and that's kind of like a really key thing to yeah. me yeah yeah oh no and it's really kind of disheartening because like uh for their time period harvest was like their representation of how well they're going to do financially mm-hmm. and so it's like he's going to wait until they have a clear idea 
of how much grapes they're going to get, how much grain they're going to get. You Basically, they can calculate all of the money that they're going to get from all of the things they've grown. And he's going to rate for precisely that moment right before they're supposed to harvest mm-hmm. to completely wipe it all out which man that's just like intense <laughs> yeah that just like sucks <laughs> it's just like that's like the worst like you're fine with things going wrong in the beginning because you haven't put in that much effort but right. it's like the, that idea that i put in so much time and resources and that's when it gets cut off and so it's like it's like god getting them where it hurts <laughs> like, yeah exactly well and it and it's it's going back to the theme of this entire chapter which is you think you know how life is going to pan out. You think that things are going to turn out good because you're making all these trades, you're making all these relationships with different people. You are, you, and you don't, you don't know if the next day a famine could sweep through the land. And that's kind of his point is that I'm the one that controls all that, not you. Um, And I also saw it as, um, us, I guess going back to the idea of the other nations sort of, you know, panicking, making plans is that sometimes, you know, we get, freaked out and we get upset and we want God to feel the same way uh, we do. And God is just saying that I'm calm because I know exactly how this is going to plan and I know how I'm going to fix this. So just like an encouragement to stay calm, even in the midst of trouble. And that kind of reminds me of even going back to Isaiah 37, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I know Isaiah 37 goes into a lot of details about chapter 18, about what they're actually saying to one another, like King Hezekiah of Judah um, versus King um, Terhaka, hope I'm pronouncing that right, of Cush and what they're saying to each other and how, the king of Cush is actually trying to put fear in the heart of Hezekiah about what's going to happen with Assyria to encourage an alliance and how Isaiah comes to give him a prophecy saying that God is not going to allow this to happen. So, you know, the idea of staying calm in the midst of trouble because God already has it taken care of, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, I, I'm so looking forward to the Hezekiah <laughs> chapters. It's going to be so much fun. So yeah, uh, you got something to look forward to. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, to this uh, latest episode of the boring Bible podcast. And we will back, be back in your feed next week with chapter 19, where we're tackling Egypt specifically and everything that God is going to do to Egypt, which is going to be fun. So tune in for that. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Bye. See you later. <laughs>